I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on the Encountering Silence podcast, we are lucky enough to have Jessica Mesman Griffith. Jessica is a widely published author whose work has been noted in Best American Essays. Her book, Love and Salt, A Spiritual Friendship and Letters, co-authored with Amy Andrews, won the 2014 Christopher Award for literature that affirms the highest values of the human spirit. She's also the author of Grace-Filled Days, Strange Journey, and co-author of Daily Inspiration for Women. Currently, she's at work on a second memoir of her Catholic childhood in Southern Louisiana, She's a columnist for U.S. Catholic Magazine and has had essays in Elle, Image, America, Christianity Today, and many more. I first met Jessica nearly two years ago when I happened upon the blog and community she founded, Sick Pilgrim. Her writing is some of the most authentic work I've ever come across, blatant about doubt, honest about mental health, real about living the life of an artist while raising children, and truthful about the challenges of being a female writer today. Beyond all this, Jess has been a friend to each of us here in the podcast and has a way of showing up for her friends and strangers alike, time and time again. You can find out more about Jess at jessicamesman.com. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So one of the ways we often open our conversation with guests is to ask them about a time in their life where they maybe first encountered silence or first met silence as something that pointed to mystery or the unknown. Do you have any stories maybe from childhood? A lot of times for people it comes up about being in nature or something. Not for me. I didn't do much nature as a child. I grew up right outside of New Orleans where it's excruciatingly hot most of the year. And I spent most of my childhood indoors for that reason. I mean, they call it sportsman's paradise, but if you aren't into like hunting and fishing, which I was not, or getting eaten alive by mosquitoes or alligators or water moccasins, you stay inside and watch MTV. (laughs) That's what I did. No athletic ability though. And I had to come to nature as an adult and discover all the things I've been missing. Nonetheless, I do. This came to me this morning while I was cleaning my daughter's bedroom and she has a little oscillating fan in her room. And I turned off the fan to clean it. And that moment when I turned off the fan and it got quiet in the room, I had, it it was like that dream sequence, you know, in a sitcom. (laughs) And I went back in time and remembered that my mom was addicted to white noise when we were growing up. It was never quiet in our house. We were, the TV was on constantly. We never turned it off, even if no one was watching it. But she also, it was to the point where she would leave the fan switched on on the air conditioner unit. So it just ran constantly. And it used to drive my dad crazy. And I remember there would be this moment every morning where my dad would get up and turn that switch to off and our house would go silent. And it was like panic. Like my mom, my sister and I would sit up in our beds 
And it was just a really, like, it was existential. We didn't like it. We didn't like that white noise disappearing. And I was thinking about all this as I was cleaning my daughter's room. I would never spend the night at friends' houses because their parents didn't do that. And the moment the air conditioner cut off, I would sit there in horror in my friend's bed and spin out all of these horrible scenarios in my mind. Like, every time it went off, I would wake up and really torture myself with the most awful thoughts, right? <laughs> and end up calling my mom to come and get me because I couldn't stand the quiet. Mm. And I would go home to our lovely wind tunnel <laughs> where MTV was on perpetually and the air conditioner was on and be like, ah, and go to sleep, you know? So that, and I, I thought about this once before when I was writing, I was reading a book by Thomas Martin and I can't remember which one it was, but I, he says it, it really like struck me in the heart because he said, we surround ourselves with constant noise to avoid a fear of death. Mm. And my mom died when I was 14 and my mom had cancer. And I, it, it just, that revealed so much to me of like this early anxiety we all had around this. It, was it this fear of death that prevented us from being able to, or did we all just have tinnitus? I don't know. I read too much into <laughs> things most of the time. But given my history and what ended up happening to my family, the fact that I associate those very happy, peaceful times in my childhood with noise, not mm. with silence, seemed worth contemplating with you guys. Mm. Mm. I love that. And, and you know, so many times people are afraid of silence because, like you say, it kind of creates that internal chaos, that stir and, you know, the bumping into ourselves and all well, of our questions. Well, you can hear your body. You can, mm -hmm. and I think for a child who had never, who'd grown up in this tunnel of white noise, for that to cut off and be able to hear my heartbeat and hear my breathing and hear, you know, the ringing in your ears, it all becomes very animal. Like, mm -hmm. what is this thing that I'm trapped in? And I think as a very sensitive, already kind of arty weirdo at that age, I couldn't handle it. I didn't know what to do with all of that. And it, it was like the telltale heart. I was hearing my heart ticking, you know. Um, As an adult, do you feel like you've been able to to morph that energy, that feeling in the silences to, to use it to, you know, for writing and whatnot? It's very difficult for me to be yeah. in any kind of silence. Mm -hmm. um, and that you guys know me. I don't, I don't ever shut up. So that's part of it, I think. But I, we still, I mean, like I said, I was turning off the fan in my daughter's room. I've trained them to sleep with white noise because I can't sleep mm. without it. When I go to a hotel room, I have to take a fan with me, you know, so it's, it's still a problem. And when I write, I write with music mm. because I, I don't like the sounds of my own body or the, even the sounds of keys on a keyboard. Like everything is so magnified. But yeah, I still need to like sort of surround myself. The only time, it, it, and it's usually in my house. I love being out in nature and not having the iPod and not, you know, when I take my long walks every day, I don't bring an iPod. I don't listen to music. I don't have earbuds, you know, um, I use that time, but I, the sounds of nature are not the sounds of my own body. It's mm -hmm. the sounds of my own body. I think that terrify me very Edgar Allan Poe. You know, it's it's really fascinating for you to say this because uh, you're like sparking, you know, you said you had your dream image. I just had it now while you were talking because this is really fascinating. I can identify completely with what you're saying. So I was a strange kid who was in my imagination. I wrote all the time. And it's really funny. Growing up, I thought I was going to be a writer. 
Um, and then academically, I got pushed to be a thinker and went in that direction and became did that rather than writing poetry and stories and memoir and stuff like that. But it's so fascinating to think here. I'm talking to someone who writes and I'm hearing your description of your childhood. And it was very similar to me. I was addicted to white noise. I couldn't sleep without a fan. Um, all this stuff. And exactly what you said when I was a kid, though, nature was fine, just like you're saying now as an adult. And there is something about being in a house because it's not mm -hmm. living. It's right. like nature is living and there's something wonderful about that and soothing and great. And I can go for a walk and be fine there. But like in the house, I needed noise. Yeah, and, and camping's the same way. I can do it when I camp, but I'm so, it's, it's it's at the risk of sounding extremely morbid. It's coffin like. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. and it's yeah. There, we also had this recurring, I'm, I can't have a conversation without talking about horror movie, so bear with me, but I, we had, my sister and I were, watched every horror movie when we were growing up, way inappropriate for our age groups. We saw The Exorcist in like fourth grade or whatever, you know, but the one <laughs> that really, really stuck with us was Serpent in the Rainbow, which is about yes. being buried alive in a zombie zombified state right so mm. this idea this is one of the things that my sister still struggles with and we still we still joke about it but it's very serious and I think that's you're getting at that with this idea when you're in a house that isn't a living thing you're the living thing trapped mm. yeah, in the house. and sure. it, it's it can be terrifying mm. Jessica did you experience fear of dark you know the fear of the absence of light for during sure. this period of time. Yeah, we always, we always had a nightlight or the closet light on like in Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just curious because I know I certainly had um had um, in talking about my childhood, I remember more fear of the dark than fear of the silence. But it seems to me that that those two may be somewhat connected. I'm just I'm I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here and I'm curious mm -hmm. if anyone else wants to jump in that you know, I think we do have kind of a societal or a cultural fear of silence that maybe ties in to that experience that we have as children, being afraid of the dark or being afraid of the well, silence. Well, I mean, growing so. up in the suburbs in a developed neighborhood, you're never in the dark ever. So right. it wasn't that much of an issue. I mean, I had a streetlight right outside of my window that was mm -hmm. never off. So it was, you know, probably so bright in that room that I couldn't sleep in it now. But I remember going to stay with my relatives in rural Georgia when I was little and I only went once I never went back because of this, they didn't do white noise. And at night mm. it was so dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Yeah. And I had never experienced anything like that, but their kids were fine. They turned the light out and they went to sleep. And I sat there in a state of absolute abject horror all night and didn't sleep a wink because I couldn't, I was blind. I couldn't see my hand. I couldn't see anything. I, so you know, I, I think that's part of the experience. It's like we, we we just don't ever we don't ever get that. We don't ever get pitch darkness or complete silence. And um, what was that exhibit that they did a, a few years ago in a museum where a, a man achieved an artist achieved a room of utter silence, and people started to go a little bit wonky in there. You couldn't stand to be in it for very long. I feel like that's what I was experiencing, experiencing, and even as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost, I wonder if it comes down to not just that there's never complete silence, but also just we have a fear of kind of 
that idea of loss of control when we're not using our senses, when we're not, we don't, we don't have our senses to attach to something. So we don't have a small light or we don't have even a tiny noise, even our bodies. I think, you know, we all get to that place where we have felt like we're going to lose control and sometimes stripping of our senses can, can take us to that place faster. Well, you lose those two senses. How are you orienting where your body is in space? Who's next to you? What's Mm going to happen next? I mean, yeah, that was the feeling of not being able to see my own body. I'd never experienced that before. And then you, it, that moves very quickly to where am I and who's next to yeah. me? And is there, I think there's a probably very deep atavistic, like, is there a predator? Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you are a sensitive control freak kind of kid who has an OCD diagnosis anyway, you know, not a good combination. Mm. But yeah. I think you're really onto something there, Cassidy. Well, and I think the the coffin, the you know, I don't think that's morbid at all because I do think that both silence and darkness are initiations into dying, right? And that mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that we live we live in a culture, whether it's suburban culture or whether it's American culture in general, and I think we could even make an argument that American Christian culture is afraid of the dark, is mm-hmm. afraid of silence, is afraid of yes. death. And, you know, and the reason why, you know, Jessica, your story is not unique and why I think that we have so many people in our, in our culture and in, in, in this interview who have struggled with one or both of those primal fears is that we don't know how to initiate our children mm-hmm. into, into dying, into darkness, into silence, into the, that radical stripping away as, as, a, as a means of creative liberation. And so... Yeah. Um, you know. I think we're certain that it means death, and then we're terrified that that's what death is, mm-hmm. that that's all death is, a silent darkness. And so in Christianity, we revolt against that by making it as loud and hideously ugly, apparently, as we can <laughs> at all times. Because we're like, no, that's not what it is. Heaven is you know, jubilant, rejoicing, and we're all going there, and we're playing tambourines, and we're sending, singing pop songs, and... I, yeah, I think you're onto something about that idea that this is this is our ultimate fear that there's nothing, you know, that we're, when we die it will be the kind of darkness I experienced in rural Georgia where I can't I have a consciousness but I have no way I have no body I have no way of seeing myself or orienting myself and I'm alone. Right. Right. So given that you've written so much about things like death, how would you say that this absence of sound is how it affects your ability to be an artist, how it impacts your writing. In creative nonfiction, we're very scene-driven. They want you to write as if you're writing a novel. They want you to write, especially in my training, in my master's program at the University of Pittsburgh was very narrative-driven. And so it almost felt like we were being asked to write screenplays over and over again. And my writing is not like that. And so I had a hard time because my... Writing is much more reflective. It's me thinking on the page. But one person told me, you know, you don't have a lot of scenes, but you have a lot of sounds. Mm. Like my descriptions were not of people doing things or talking to each other, but the way that they sounded walking or the way um, a certain song impacts me or the way. So I always thought that that was interesting. And I, I, as someone who loves music, I often, I mean, I write a lot about music and the way that music impacted um, my childhood. All my, my entire family are musicians. I'm the only person in generations that doesn't play an instrument. <laughs> so mm. 
I think that's part of it, having an ear trained from an early age to that. Um, and uh, and nostalgia, having a lot of my childhood memories and formation connected to music. But yeah, I think that that's part of it. I think being attentive to those little moments that some people miss is, is about that too. And also I think good writing is having an ear. Everybody will tell you that. Having an ear for how something sounds on the page, for the rhythm of language, and if you, you know, the, the best writers have an ear for when something falls, like the way we would say it falls flat or it doesn't sound true. Mm. So all of that is really important. It's interesting, too, because a lot of your writing has dealt with, you know, the themes of death and, and everything else. And, and part of the thing on this podcast is where we talk about silence from different angles. And we often are playing with. Uh, silence as either toxic or silence as useful and creative and insightful. You know, there's these two ways of approaching it. And I'm wondering, based upon what you said before about silence and white noise and everything, if that, and now you're talking about rhythm, I wonder if this feeds this, uh, this interplay of toxic silence and maybe positive silence you're working out on the page here in your writing because I know a lot of your writing does deal with some of the toxic silence, like the silencing of women, for instance, or, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, those things, um, or the silencing of, of somebody with, um, mental health issues or whatever. So I'm, I'm wondering mm-hmm. if, if that feeds into what you do on the page. There's an issue of privilege whenever we talk about silence and the arts in that, Oh, we need time. We need space to write. We need quiet to write. And, so many of us for so many different reasons are not going to get that. Mm -hmm. And what happens to your creativity and your um, artistic output when you are not one who can afford silence? Because silence is, it's a commodity now. Like we have to buy it. We don't live in places and we don't live lives that we have access to the kind of silence that we believe artists need to create. So what does that mean for women who are, raising children or, or men who are raising children alone? What does it mean for working class people who work 12 to 18 hours a day, shift work? Where are they getting that moment? I mean, that's a practical kind of consideration. Like how do we get that silence and what is lost when people can't create because they don't have access to those environments where we can. And on the flip side of that, the fact that it's seen as a luxury can prevent people from seeking it out because Mm. we don't want to believe that we are those kinds of luxurious people who need um, a hothouse environment Mm -hmm. to do work. We don't want to believe that that's true. We want to believe that the creative force is so strong that we will create no matter what you write or you die, you, you, or you write or you die, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Like, Oh, if I didn't write, I would surely die. That's just not true for me. I think that's not true for anybody. Like you can live perfectly well, probably better if you never. <laughs> but um, I'd be a lot happier an electrician. But you might I, all I, agree with that. So what left? What is the impact on the world if you don't write? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what is what Absolutely. is lost when we don't have those voices writing that could have been writing? Um, and the the I'm drawing a lot from Tilly Olson's essay Silences, which. Cassidy sent me as a gift in the very beginning of our friendship and I read it and it really cracked this open for me because she talks about silences in so many different ways. She talks about it as the natural writer's block 
the all writers experience where you have those fallow periods where you just can't write. But then she talks about the times when we cannot write, not because of our artistic spirit or our creativity or inspiration, but because of the imposition on us by the world or by circumstance or by bad luck that we don't have Mm. the time or the energy or the spirit to write. Mm. And she's looking at the canon of literature and saying, we need to recognize that the canon is white, Western and male for more reasons than that. These are the only people doing great work. Mm -hmm. It's that these were the people who had the opportunity and the support to do great work. And even within that canon, there are huge holes where Mm. writers ran up against these like silencing moments where we don't know what more we would have had from a Hawthorne or a Melville or a Virginia Woolf if they had not come up against the conditions that ultimately silenced them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just a really important, you know, when I was, I was just at a conference at, for the Festival of Faith and Writing and looking around at who gets to speak on panels, you know, and I was on a few panels and I'm looking around and I'm like, who isn't here? Who couldn't afford to, who is a wonderful writer and has loads to say to the world, but could not afford a plane ticket, could not afford the feet of the conference, didn't have a publisher behind them to pay for it, didn't have an academic job that would do it as professional development. What voices are missing? Mm -hmm. And when you ask those questions and you look around the room and you see that the room is largely white, middle-class, upper middle-class women and men we're missing an entire so much dimension to the conversation. These are the only voices that we're hearing. So Mm -hmm. I, that's a toxic silencing Mm -hmm. um, that has to change. And that's one of the things, you know, and it's not just uh, people who have mental illness, people who have disabilities, people who can't get to the table to share their work, but are producing the work and should be included in the conversation and in pushing the needle so that more people can write that kind of work. And that's one of the things I want to do with my work is not, you know, not necessarily even in my writing, but just in my professional life, continue to try to open doors and just ask the question, just stand up and ask the question in the room who just look around every time we start a panel, stand up and look around and say, who isn't here and who is, Mm how is that going to affect this conversation? And with Sick Pilgrim, you've offered, I mean, such an amazing platform for so many voices to be heard. And it's amazing to hear that you're still looking out around the room, so to speak, you know? I mean, that's really encouraging to hear. Let's say with Sick Pilgrim, we've done a lot in terms of giving people who did not feel welcome to speak up in a church environment or church community or religious or spiritual community. I mean, we started out as a bunch of Catholics, but it's gone way beyond that. And so I I think it has served that purpose. We still run against, you know, not having writers of color, not having writers, you know, uh, who are LGBTQ, who are willing to come in. I mean, because it's still as safe of a space as we can make for Christians, I still don't think that we're able to create that kind of safety where people feel comfortable telling those stories or we're still living in and working in environments where we don't intersect. Mm. And why, why is that? Why, when I go to creative writing conferences, am I not, I mean, this is where I meet people going to professional events, going to conferences, going to readings. Like you're going to have to branch out beyond that because those voices aren't coming for whatever reason. And so I'm trying now to make it 
a goal to read more widely, first of all, to find, I know those voices are out there to find them. And if they aren't being published, uh, you know, in spiritual and religious publishing, find out why and how we can help. So I think that would be a next level thing for Sick Pogrom. We've done really well with mental illness and with those who have dissented from church teaching. I say dissent in quotes because that's the word people use for us. But most people are still trying to be faithful to their faith traditions and just want a place to be honest about how difficult that is mm-hmm. in our time. But I feel like the, another step is to open doors to other writers and encouraging other writers who are coming from different backgrounds of silencing. I'm reading a book right now by this amazing woman, Barbara Holmes. It's called Joy Unspeakable. And it's about the experience of the contemplative practice in the African-American church. And one of the things that she talks about is the silence that is a, a loved silence or a desired silence or a hoped for silence is the silencing of the voice of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I'm listening to you, Jessica, I'm also wondering, in order to invite the people on the margins or the people who are not present at the conferences or, you know, wherever we want to, you know, situate our conversations, to invite them to speak, that also seems to imply that those of us who are the beneficiaries of privilege. Mm-hmm how do we step into our silence Mm -hmm. to create the space and the invitation and the safety? And, you know, and again, I can't be responsible for another person's safety, but I sure can be responsible that I don't contribute to another person being unsafe. Right. And like, you know, we're writers and spiritual speakers. We don't have wealth. That's not the privilege we're coming from, but Mm. we have, we have other kinds of privilege. And I feel like, yeah, we're at a point where we got to put it on the table. And when we're invited to speak somewhere, we have to ask who else is on the panel. And if it's a bunch of white people mm-hmm. f- who are all from the same background and very similar experiences, it's not going to be that great of a panel anyway. So I start asking. And then that's, you know, it's something it didn't even really occur to me because for so long I was young in my career. I was clawing my way into these things myself. I was Mm -hmm. trying to get spots, but now that I'm in a place where I'm invited more often and I have enough when, once you get, I mean, whatever, I wouldn't even use the word power, but once you have a voice at the table, you Mm -hmm. can use that voice to say, why is this panel so homogenous? Why don't we have a voice? Why don't, and say, I can't participate unless there is, or give my spot to someone with a different perspective. I mean, I feel like we have to be willing to do that or it's not going to happen. It is kind of on us to demand that we make space. And I see that in the, my church in Indianapolis, All Saints is just this gorgeous, inclusive church where I feel the safety. I feel how the others feel there. They feel loved. They feel valued. They feel like just as integral part of the community as anyone else creating that environment takes work and it takes sacrifice on the part of the people who are used to being the ones who stand up and talk, um, recognizing that, you know, we're there because we, we look the way that people are used to writers looking, or we're talking about the things that writers are used to hearing about. So being willing to pitch those uncomfortable panels (laughs) being, you know, is one thing. And I feel like if we're going to, 
if we are going to speak at these conferences, we better have something new and urgent and important to say, and we better invite and seek out. And it can be hard. I know when we were planning, trying to say God at Notre Dame, it can be hard to find people who are willing to come to a Catholic conference because they are worried that they are Mm -hmm. going to be blasted out of the room, Mm -hmm. not welcome, you know, and convincing those people First of all, finding anyone with Catholicity at this point is can be difficult, and then convincing them that they will be welcome and protected and honored, and their their voice will be valued is really hard. But I think it's on us to make those changes. And another thing I would say is for those planning conferences and events and readings, read more. <laughs> you know, I feel like when if you go to Catholic conferences, you will hear the same five voices over mm. and over and over as your keynotes, and we. I understand the uh, economics of having to sell tickets or get people involved and having that big name as your headliner, but we've got to be willing to take risks alongside of that. If you're going to have the usual suspects, you've got to work overtime to bring in those other writers who could benefit from getting the audience that those usual suspects attract. And that's one thing we're trying to do with trying to say God is invite the elder statesmen for sure have them there at the table, but use that time to bring other writers to the table so that we can have a more vibrant future as those writers come up and do their work and let them know that we're interested in their work and and committed to helping them. I feel like we haven't seen a lot of that in, especially in Catholic publishing, we've seen a lot of complaining that Catholic publishing doesn't matter anymore, that people don't, Catholics don't read anymore, but I feel like we've let that happen and we can, if we're willing to use our privilege and our muscle to push it in another direction, we can do that. Is it exhausting? It's incredibly exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Is it um, dispiriting at times? Yes. But it's also, it's life-changing when it comes together and you get to hear those kinds of voices. When you get to hear Natalie Diaz read poetry in a room at the University of Notre Dame and blow every Mm -hmm. single person in that room away and have a white straight man stand up at the end and say, I needed to hear your voice. Mm -hmm. Mm. I was done after that. I was like, the conference is over. (laughs) Like that's (laughs) those are the sorts of things that I feel like we have to be brave and willing and also willing to be told to shut up because people have heard our shtick. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. Who are some of the names you're reading right now, Jess? Well, one that comes to mind, of course, is Natalie, um, who completely just we all fell in love with her work and her um, her personality and her. She had so much wonderful stuff to say. She's so incredibly charismatic and brave. So we all became um, fans of Natalie Diaz and her poetry. Um, Tyhimba Jess, who won the Pulitzer for his book Olio. Hmm. 
I had the uh, good fortune to meet him when he when I was at Interlochen. He came and spoke to the students there. And it's just one of those situations where you go to dinner with somebody for five minutes, and, like you figure out they're Catholic. And you're like, <laughs> here we have a black man from Detroit who's writing about minstrelsy and poems about minstrelsy. And then you look a little bit deeper and you're like, oh, you were a Catholic boy. You know, you were you were a Catholic boy from Detroit. And so much of that is going into his work. So that's what I mean, though. You would never know. Mm-hmm. Simon Majestic and talk about being Catholic, but you you sense some affinity with the worldview or um, with the symbol system, the symbol system that we all grow up with when we when we grow up Catholic or Episcopalian or, or liturgical churches. It's there in the work. Another writer that I've discovered recently that I absolutely love is Rosalie Morales Kearns, who wrote a book called Kingdom of Women that I think was the best novel of last year. I think serendipitously the subject matter that she took on exploded right at the right time to mean so much to Catholic women. I mean, she is another person who was raised in the faith, um, Catholic educated her whole life, and then writes a book, an an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic book about, or a dystopian book about what it would be like if the Catholic Church ordained women priests. And of course, and this is all too imaginable at this time in our culture, the evening of the first female ordination, there is a mass shooter who comes in and shoots the entire ordination um, class. And there's a sole survivor who then has PTSD. And of course the book follows her through being the only woman Catholic priest in the world in this sort of dystopian future where women are trying to, create a matriarchy and subvert the patriarchy. And they want her to be their figurehead. And she resists it. And because she is a mystic and a priest and a contemplative, and she is not a violent person, and they are definitely a violent movement. So you get this, um, it's just a beautiful novel that is deeply Catholic and also deeply disturbing. And something that we would, again, would never be recommended to read by probably someone in our parish. But this woman is writing gorgeous, deeply Catholic literary work. And she has another book called Virgins and Tricksters of Short Stories that is the same, just a beautiful, fabulous approach to writing, but deeply inflected with her Catholicism in a way that is like I've never, like I've never read, really. I think she's wonderful. So those are three writers that I've encountered over the last few months that have you know, that make me want to keep seeking out more. Like, what am I not hearing from, you know, we're saying Catholic writing is dead. There's no great Catholic writing going on, but we have Catholics out there winning Pulitzers. We have George Saunders writing Lincoln and the Bardo, which is one of the most beautiful books about death I've ever read. (laughs) They're out there. And aside from those people who are rising to the top, there's all of us who are trying to come up behind them. And how can we, how can we show them like, yeah, you don't just have to read Flannery O'Connor and uh, Walker Percy and Thomas Merton, as much as we all love him, you, there are people, there, your contemporaries are still struggling with this, and, and there is a model and a path for you to follow. And I think there's also a misconception that Catholic work is just for Catholics. I mean, uh, you mm-hmm. know, me, for instance, I've, I've found a lot of, of great Catholic writing that's extremely approachable, extremely, you know, readable, and life-changing for my own, you know, faith journey. 
think I, we've gotten away from this idea that um, of this universalism. Catholic is universal. If we're really truly writing Catholicly, mm-hmm. we're not mm-hmm. going. We may be writing difficult stuff that would be difficult for anyone, Catholic or not, to read. Right. Right. But we shouldn't be alienating people because we're Catholic and they feel like they don't understand the symbol system or they don't understand the theology. Like, you know, you're not going to give somebody the book seven secrets of the Eucharist. And I feel like this is, (laughs) this is where Catholic publishing is right now. So can Mm. we have, I mean, I don't know. I've kind of given up the idea that we can have a Catholic literature or, or literary press because we're so insular now. And because Catholicism is so loaded and people are wary of it. And I don't, if you have that kind of, you know, marking on your book, you're going to lose a lot of audience right away. We found that with Love and Salt, which was not, which was not a book that really, it could have been published by a secular press. It was a book about doubt and grief and longing, and it happened to be grounded in Catholicism. And I think the publishing world has changed enough since that book was published, which was in 2013, that it would have more of a chance with the secular press today, but back then it wouldn't have because people were just like two Catholic ladies, please, you know, who like really take their faith seriously and aren't making fun of it. You know, it was hard to find a home for that book, but then a Catholic press was very wary of it at the same time because it wasn't Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. It wasn't bullet points for to holiness, you know. Yeah. It was a real honest exploration of what it feels like to be Catholic right now for a woman and have to face incredible suffering and grief and whether or not this system works. And we don't come to any easy conclusions. We have moments of transcendence and moments where we feel comforted and we have moments where we are angry and spiteful and want to throw it all away. And I feel like that's the faith life. That's an authentic representation of what it means to be Catholic. But you don't, you don't get a lot of that. I think what you're talking about, too, is the distinction of how we've moved away from literature and moved away from analogy and, and, mm-hmm. and an exploration of the world as a human being. What does it look like to be here and to struggle and to doubt and to wonder and everything else, which is what every human being deals with. And instead, what we've done is in a lot of circles, you keep talking about, you know, the the publishing model has turned into mm-hmm. kind of definitions and apologetics and words. And it's a kind of thinking and controlling and manipulating that gets us right back. It, it, it almost brings us all the way back to where we started at the beginning of this podcast. There's a, there's a type of self that yes. gets locked in a dead room. Mm-hmm. And then there's a yeah. type of self that appears when you're out in a wild setting and you're alive and you're engaged with wild living things. What is it like when the Catholics get out of the room and go yeah. into wild things? Yes. And, and I think that's what we see. We see more in secular right. literature than we are going to see from our Catholic and Christian publishing houses. It's what I love about Sick Pilgrim is that we are stubbornly still here. And <laughs> we've had ugly things happen in our community. We've had we've been embarrassed. We've been accused of being dissidents. We've been told we're not really Catholic. We've been accused of trying to be hip, which if you, like, knew us, you would laugh your ass off. Like, we got a group of, like, homeschooling moms and, you know, just, you know, metalheads from Italy (laughs) run up, like, antique bookshops. Like, we're not 
that's not what this is about. We're not trying to be edgy. It's that we want to say like, yeah, so many of us, uh, so many of us aren't Catholic, but so many of us are, and we're still Catholic. And you don't get to tell me if my cat, if my Catholicity is right. You don't get to tell me if I can be in the church or out of the church. I can do, I can experience all the things I'm experiencing and I am still as much of a Catholic as you are. And if uh, these holiness contests and purity tests and orthodoxy policing and all those little cute phrases we've come up for it, like I have no interest in that. I have no interest in um, gauging whether or not someone else is doing Catholicism right. Are you baptized? You know, do you go to mass? Do you identify with a Catholic symbol system? Even if you're Anglo-Catholic or you know, another right, or, you know, I extend it to liturgical faiths too. Like we're all doing this still. You can't tell us we can't do this because our lives don't look the way your life looks or the way you think our life should look. And I believe very firmly in the church as being a hospital for sinners. And I, I, it's the most beautiful thing about it to me. I'm not going to abandon that. So to have a space in the Catholic blogosphere, which is a curious world of its own, where we can hear those voices and we can push back a little bit and say Catholicism doesn't always look like you think it looks, then that's beautiful. And then on the other side of that, I am always trying to push our writers out of that bubble and into the secular world where they can get their work out there and, you know, influence the perception of religious people in that way, that we're not all the sheep that we are conceived of as being, or, you know, part of this like obscure, oppressive patriarchy, um, that, you know, we're, do we experience that? Do we struggle with it? For sure. A lot of us do, but like, we are the church and I want to show people like what the church really looks like. The church doesn't just look like those people you think are the church. The church also looks like me and single parents and divorced people and, people in irregular marriages and LGBTQ people and people of color. And I, I, I just, we, we refuse to, to have any sort of, you know, to give those people any sort of presence in our church unless they're spouting a party line. So I want people to think about that, but I also want us to think about, is it really okay? Is it really healthy? Is it really vibrant? Is it really alive to have a church where we only hear one very specific kind of voice in a teaching mode? And I don't have the answer to that question, but it's a problem for me. Right now, I feel that I've endured a little bit of... um, faith destroying over the last year, just in terms of the work that I do. And I know this is a risk of ministry. This is a risk of going into ministry. A lot of people's faith is destroyed by going into ministry. Warn anyone who thinks they're going into parish work (laughs) that they may not be Catholic by the end of the year. But because again, the church is us and we're not all beautiful and perfect. And most of us are pretty messed up, but this is, this is what the church is. So it has its good side and it has its dark side. And it's, it takes a really strong soul to do that work. And I have so much respect for them, but I want more voices doing that work. And like, just like I said about planning conferences, how do you let them know that they're welcome? How do you make them feel safe doing it? But being a discerning reader, I feel like that's something that we can help to teach. That's something we can help to do through writing conferences, calling into question, who is the author of this text? What is their background? 
why are they, why are they writing in this mode, you know, and who's being left out of this conversation? I want to ask that of every single speaker we bring. Um, Jessica, uh-huh. one thing we always ask our guests is, do you have a silence hero? Can I have more than one? Sure. Yes. Of course. Well, first I'd say Tilly, Tilly Olson, because, you know, that's the basis of all my work right now. And she transformed how we look at the literary canon. She opened up a whole new avenue of um, look at all these writers who aren't writers. Mm. <laughs> they should have been writers, mm. but they couldn't be. And why? And mm. what has the world lost because of that? So looking at silences in that way is one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure someone's talked about John Cage before, mm-hmm. um, but I took a poetry class in graduate school where we focused on Black Mountain College, mm-hmm. and I did my project for that. I had never done anything like this. I was just like a girl from Southern Louisiana. I don't know anything about art or, I mean, at the time I was, I was a hayseed and here I am like transfer. I'd never even been out of the state of Louisiana. I was 25 years old and I'd never gone anywhere. I'm sitting in a classroom in Pittsburgh with like these amazing poets who know all this stuff. And then I get assigned to like do John Cage and Black Mountain College for my project. So I had to recreate the, the silence composition in terms of my own work. And wow. it was really, what's it called for four minutes, 33, 433. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to do this in my own home, which for the girl who can't get away from white noise. Mm, wow. That, that moment when I realized like the world, everything is musical and that's, you know, what he's conveying. Like you don't have to make the music. The music is there if you mm-hmm. sit and listen to it. So that was mind blowing in so many regards, just because I'd never encountered anything. So, you know, you know, I, I was an MTV kid. I'd never encountered anything like that. So that was, it was transformative to my work because I think I went from being the nervous talker that I am and filling space constantly to understanding how to use space in work, um, and how to, how to, when to leave those silences to create a different kind of rhythm in your writing. And when, and I'm, I still use this as an editor all the time. So often people just overwrite. And if you trim back, if you keep it spare, if you use as little as possible, it's so much more powerful. And then every image that you used glows. And that's what happens when you do that 433. You, every tiny, and it's what happens when you turn off your oscillating fan in the middle of the night, <laughs> every little tick becomes a part of the story. So that's really interesting. And then more recently, I went to see A Quiet Place, which I was telling Cassidy about the, mm-hmm. the movie. Have you guys talked about this on no, the podcast? No, not yet. No, no, no we haven't. Yet. We could do a whole episode on this film. Yes. There is a, it is the same story where they, this family has to live in silence for survival. And you yes. realize, first of all, how impossible that is in our culture. And I watched it at a Dolby theater, a special Dolby theater, so that the sound was so heightened. And you get to a point where the human voice, you only hear it a couple of times in the film, but when you hear it, it is the most beautiful thing you've ever heard. 
the voice of a husband and wife whispering to each other about their grief for their children is the most moving thing I have seen in the cinema in so long. And it is because they, the silence is so fraught for so long that when you finally hear the voices speaking to each other in that real tenderness, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I completely broke down. It, I don't think it would have mattered what they were saying. And then there's another scene where they come together and they dance wearing earbuds, but they can both hear the same music. And they dance to Neil Young's Harvest Moon, which is a beautiful song anyway. But when you've had no soundtrack involvement, you've, you've had no score to the film, which we're so accustomed to hearing all of those things taking away from the film... And then all of a sudden you get this transcendent, beautiful Neil Young song at full volume as if you are wearing the earbuds. Not a dry eye in the house. And how do you how do you orchestrate that as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, so that you have carved away everything to the point where something that you would think is mundane, you hear Harvest Moon on the classic rock radio station, whatever, it's pretty, but you hear it in this context and you realize how precious that music is and how precious that moment is between like a husband and wife being able to hear something together. So I definitely, I definitely recommend that to you guys. I think you could just do a whole series. Let's oh, wait, I have one more. Go for it. So Andy Warhol, another one. And I think this is, this is previous to all, I mean, he was probably working at the same time as John Cage, but his films, which are terrible films. And he, he loved that they were awful, <laughs> which I also is sort of a sick pilgrim thing. Like if it's bad, like it's good, you know, because <laughs> we just want to, it's part of throwing doors open and, and getting rid of elitism is to just be like, we're going to just do this. And if it falls apart and it's horrible then whatever, but at least we tried, but he, he kind of reveled in doing things that were boring and tedious just to see, I mean, it was performance art to see what the effect would be on the viewer, to see who would sit for eight hours besides some junkies, you know, to watch the entire <laughs> state building not move or to watch someone eat or to watch someone sleep or to watch a couple kiss with no dialogue, no music. And I, I, I've always loved those little experiments. And Yoko Ono used to do things like that too, like, like strip down human experience to something so basic. And it often involves silence because we, you know, we get our cues from music and dialogue and the and um, ambient noise. So if you strip all of that away and you just have the man and woman kissing, and you have to like watch that for an uncomfortable amount of time, like what happens to the way you think about intimacy? And I mean, I think he claimed he was doing it because he was boring, but of course he was more brilliant than that. And he, of course he was interested in human interaction and intimacy. So those are other things that I think about when I'm writing. Like, how do you make a scene shine like that with new meaning for jaded readers who've seen and read everything? And the writers who do it the best are the ones who can strip away all those externals and choose just the right powerful image or moment or word to make that kind of impact. So Jess, what are you working on now? Tell us what you're currently writing about. I am finishing a second memoir, which is all about my um, adolescent years in New Orleans. The backdrop to this will be very much my Catholic upbringing, going to Catholic school, being deeply involved in, a, in Catholic cultural life down there, which is very different than growing up anywhere else. You grow up in New Orleans and 
you get a very different conception of what it means to be Catholic than you mm. would anywhere else in this country, which was very jarring for me to find out later. So that's sort of the scenery, but the story is more about, I've become really interested in this idea of whether generational sin is actually true because we have all mm. of this um, new science that supports that we carry, we pass on trauma in our genes. Mm. So traumatic events in the lives of parents do impact their children. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been wondering, as any good reader of the Old Testament would, you know, if there isn't something to what we thought back then about generational sin and being doomed to repeat the sins of our parents, getting locked into stories that we can't break out of because they are actually in our genetic makeup. Mm-hmm. So the passing on of mental illness and Genetic traits is one thing, but can we pass on stories? Mm. And can we pass on stories to the point that we cannot move out of that sort of feedback loop until we complete that story? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, mm. you know, pure fantasy on my part. But I'm just sort of, I'm starting with a maybe a decent hypothesis and then going completely off the rails because I'm a writer. But so because of that, I've also gotten obsessed with time travel, which is why I keep talking about it on the blog and um, in our online group, because there is so much quantum physics that also delves into, I mean, it's not quite as crazy as it sounds. There is real quantum physics that is dealing mm-hmm. with these same issues. Do we can, is it possible, according to the laws of physics, to get stuck in a feedback loop, mm-hmm. repeat the same patterns again and again and again? Um, and so... I want to play with all of those things in this book because my mother's life ended at 35, but so much of the things that I did not know about her have also happened to me in my adulthood. Mm. Like Mm. things that I couldn't have known, I have repeated. And so it's almost as if there is some like, you know, there's something to this that like the story somehow has to be finished before I can move on and live my own life. Or will I pass it on to my daughter? Mm. Mm. And then, you know, of course, the Gothic South is behind all of this. So I'm primed to write something spooky about getting stuck in a feedback loop in the Gothic South, (laughs) you know, but that's what that's basically the story is, you know, how much free will do we really have? Because our free will is limited by circumstance. And that can bring us right back to Tilly Olson. You can want to be a writer all you want. But if you're born into a working class home, even a broken home, if your marriage fails, if you don't have the privilege of having a spouse who can pick up the slack while you do your creative work and is supportive of it and wants you to accomplish it, there's so many reasons. If you have a special needs child who, who requires all of your energy and care, why? what are the things that are preventing us from exercising our free will? And I just kind of want to push that to an extreme as much as I can in memoir and not in a nonfiction, like ask a really extreme question based on that. Like, mm-hmm. could I be doomed to live out this story till its end? Hmm. I'm trying to get it done this summer and then hopefully start shopping it around. And, um, but I, I'm having a lot of fun asking those questions, which I don't have fun writing. I'm not a fun person. Okay. I don't do fun writing. Writing is miserable and awful and torture. And that's why it's hard. (laughs) But for these questions excite me. Yeah. I've recovered some of the play and joy of writing by allowing myself to ask questions that seem a little bit ridiculous at first. But then being fascinated to find that I'm not the only one asking these questions, that people who are much more brilliant than I am, like um, 
Carlo Rovelli and Stephen Hawking and other <laughs> quantum physicists are asking these questions right. and also like really astute theologians. So finding a way for a memoir about a little girl from Slidell, Louisiana to live into those questions is really challenging. But so that's the task at hand, I guess. Well, I, you know, I want to I want to thank you, Jessica, for your time. As I, I always enjoy hearing about your work, and it's inspiring. And again, I'm I'm excited about this idea of this book, so I can't wait to thank read it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to see my friends. Yes, thank you. Goodbye, Jess. Thanks for being on. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social spiritual and physical well-being 